really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go to distance. Welcome to episode 84 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is Mike Kunda. This is an actor and star of the documentary The Pretender, which in my opinion has been one of the best films I've seen over the last couple of years. This is an absolute honour to have him on today's podcast and I can't wait to share this episode with you. As you know, with true typical Mark and Me fashion, I do like to touch base and talk about the last episode. So I was joined by the actor Daniel Weber. I want to say a big thank you to everyone that tuned in and the amazing feedback that this episode received. It was such a good interview, very short, but the feedback I got was even though it was a short interview, everyone got to still learn a lot about this actor. And again, I've spoken to Daniel and he really enjoyed the episode too. So thank you very much for that. But back into today's episode, as I said at the start, I'm joined by Mike Kunda. I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to take my dad for his 80th birthday to New York. He's never really been further than Spain on a plane before. I think we went to Portugal when I was a kid, but that was about it. And he always said to me one of his dreams was to go to New York. He wanted to walk down the street and be able just to eat a hot dog off the side of the streets. So we took him and it was just me and him. And while we were there, we met up with my good friend Ben from Skip to the End. And while we were there, I wanted to try and get as much done in that week as we could. So I took him to New Jersey. But the big surprise for his actual birthday was to take him to the Rocky Steps. One of my dad's favourite films of all time is Rocky. I grew up watching all the Rocky films again and again, so the VHS nearly had worn out. It was literally the film that was always on, but I never got bored. And it's that film I associate with my childhood and those amazing nights with my dad just cheering on Rocky and falling in love with these films and the boxing behind it. So while we are there, I thought I wanted to surprise him, take him to the official Rocky tour. Now, this is where I first met Mike, and he blew my mind. Such a nice guy, and such a, such a, you know, when you just meet someone, you warm to them straight away and feel like you've known them. It was that sort of experience for me. Mike is an absolute legend. Since talking to him, he's met with Sylvester Stallone many a times. He's now got the film out of The Pretender, which in my opinion is one of the best documentaries, and it's available on Amazon, and you can see it on iTunes and all the normal sites. But what was really important is he the time he gave to my dad and how welcoming he we really were. It was it was just the moment we got off the bus into Philadelphia, he was there. We surprised my dad, he had no idea we were going on the tour. We got to go to Adrian's pet shop, Mickey's gym, all around the sort of town of Philadelphia. The city was absolutely beautiful and it it was just one of the best days of my life. And to see my dad and his reaction was incredible. When I came back, I thought, I really wanted to get this guy on to this episode. I really wanted to talk to him more. And obviously, with the release of The Pretender, I thought, what a great time to speak to him and find out what he's been up to over the last couple of years. So this is my opportunity to sit down and talk with Mike and share with you some of those stories and experiences. So here's my interview now with me and Mike Kunder.
So, Mike, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for reaching out. I'm excited to talk about uh, all things Rocky and the Pretender. So, what I want to do is, for the listeners out there, take it right back to the start. And I want to know what it was like when you were very young, growing up in Philadelphia. Well, you know, that's what a lot of people think, that I was actually born and raised in Philly. But I was actually born and raised in a little town north of Philadelphia called Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, it kind of looks like Philadelphia, only it's a lot smaller. When I was a kid, you know, being eight years old on the schoolyard, I was a very tiny child. So I had my issues with the schoolyard bullies. But I'm sure everyone has, right? Yeah. That wasn't the big issue. The big issue is how I handled it. <laughs> you see, my first heroes were the Lone Ranger and Zorro. I was never satisfied watching them on TV. I had to literally become those heroes. So my dad was a tailor. He would make curtains or hem a sports coat or jeans, pants, whatever. And he would make me these costumes. And on the weekends, I would go running around my neighborhood dressed as these imaginary heroes while the other regular kids were playing sports or hide-and-seek, whatever kids did at that age. So right away, it put me on the edge of, I guess, the, my peer group. You know what I mean? I was a square peg in a round hole. So that was probably around 1976. I guess about maybe the following year, my mother, she bought me a Superman Halloween costume. <laughs> you should wear that only at Halloween. But <laughs> I wore it underneath my school clothes because I thought it might give me some type of super emotional strength. I knew I wouldn't fly or bend steel with my bare hands, but I thought instead of crying or running away from the bullies, I might be able to, you know, take them on. But I was incredibly off on that assumption because on my way to school, the, uh, the, the local schoolyard bully saw what looked like a hump on my back uh, because I would wear it under the school clothes. So I looked like Quasimodo. <laughs> he would then rip my shirt, the cape would fall out, and everyone would see my S on my chest. So, you know, I'm standing there kicking the dirt, and you could imagine kids don't understand that type of emotional depravity. So <laughs> I, uh, I was cast further on the, on the fringe of my peer group. Well, when I was 11 in 1979, it was February, my father told me about a movie that was going to be playing on television that night. It was a movie called Rocky. It was about this guy who was Italian. He was a boxer. And maybe my father thought I could pick up a few tips uh, how to deal with these schoolyard bullies. And, uh, you know, at that age, when your parents talk, you pretty much listen to them because you assume they know everything. We sat there, my mother, my father, my brother, big bowl of popcorn, sitting on the floor in front of one of those old wooden 19-inch console t floor TVs. There was a black screen, and then I heard, and the big white letters come across the screen. And I felt literally dormant DNA in my body come to life. I could feel this vibration through my veins. Later, I would understand there was a word for this, inspiration. And, uh, but I didn't understand what was happening to me at the time. I watched the movie, all two hours, I'm completely blown away. I go to bed that night, and I grab my gray sweatshirt, 
and I write in magic marker on the back, Italian Stallion, just like Rocky did. Because like Zorro and the Lone Ranger, I've got to become this character now. I wore it to school the next day, and nobody really noticed it, except the teacher did. And back in those days, you know, back in the 70s, teachers could slap you, harass you, insult you. Today, if they did that, they'd lose their teaching license, go to jail, million-dollar fine. I mean, it would be a huge scandal. So, anyways, he calls me up to the class, and he asks the class, is this the correct way to spell Italian stallion? <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I had spelled it incorrectly. <laughs> so not only was I a fool for dressing like Superboy and the Lone Ranger, but I was also an idiot because I couldn't spell. So you could imagine recess <laughs> on the schoolyard. When the teacher makes fun of you, you might as well just pull your coat up over your head and zipper right up because... <laughs> Hey, you're better off that way than facing everyone. Anyways, then I go to about 13, and my grandfather, he was uh, an old old miner, and uh, he calls me up to his house. He had heard of another fight I got into, and so he says, Mikey, I got something for you. And he says, he reaches into his closet, he pulls down an old hat box, and inside was his black fedora that he used to wear as a young man back in the 40s and 50s. So I put it on, and it fit. And then he gave me his old black leather jacket that was remarkably like Rocky's. But my grandfather, he clearly knew I needed to become the hero. I needed to become who I was worshiping at that time. And uh, when I looked in the mirror, sure enough, I said, oh, my God, Grandpa, <laughs> I'm Rocky. <laughs> he goes, you know, Mikey? He goes, you kind of are. He goes, you kind of do have a Rocky look here. But, you know, if you're going to wear this in the neighborhood, if you're going to wear it to school, you gotta, you gotta learn how to throw a punch. And I guess it was around this same time where uh, I had signed up quite psychotically on my end. I had no business doing this, but I signed up for a local wrestling match. Uh, it was like an intramural city type of thing. And so I made this uh, this uh, little team there. I think my weight was probably I don't know 120 pounds, 105, whatever it was, 130 pounds at the time, and uh, every day I'd train and practice, I'd wrestle with these kids that were, you know, far more suited to the sport than I was. Now comes the day where I have to go and, and wrestle. Uh, and my father and my brother come down, my mother had to work. It was at my local high school, and we go down to the high school, and my match isn't until like one o'clock. My father and brother hang around till about noon, and then they say, okay, you're not gonna wrestle till one, so we'll come back down. We're going to go to back to the house and get something to eat. So I, I watch them leave. I watch them go out the doors of the gym. I look at the clock. It's just like, you know, 5 after 12 or whatever. Next thing I know, I find myself walking home. And it was shortly after my father left. And I walk in the back door. And my father goes, what's going on? And he, I said, oh, no, they moved up my match. They pinned me. Done. Quick. But I didn't look at him. I kept my head down. And he goes, uh, what are you talking about? What do you mean here, Mike? And I said, I, I told him again. And he goes, what really happened? And I was prone to crying at this time. Whatever it was, I would just break down and start crying. So I told him I was so scared that I didn't want to go back and get humiliated and lose in front of all these people. Because if it's one thing I knew, I was sure to lose. Well, my father gets down on one knee and he looks at me and he goes, listen. He goes, you could do one of two things. He goes, you can stay here. He goes, not a problem. He goes, I'm going to love you no matter what. 
He goes, or you can walk back to that high school, the three of us, and you can wrestle. You followed through with this. You said you were going to do it. You gave your word, and now you got to do it. So you tell me. And there was no, nothing out of my mouth. And then he said one more thing. He goes, Mike, he goes, if, you, if you run now, you're going to run the rest of your life. In one form or another, people are always going to come after you. So you gotta, you got to step it up. What do you want to do? So we go back down to the gym, and um, I've got about 10 minutes to go for the wrestling match. And I get on the mat, and the first time I didn't do too well the first round. Second round, did a little bit better. The third round, I was really going a lot harder. I, I had built up a little bit of confidence in the few minutes I was wrestling, and the team kind of were hanging around me saying, oh, my kid, here you go, Mike, flip him over, flip him over. Sadly, I did not flip him over, but it didn't, it didn't matter whether I won or I lost. The, the point was is that I had gone back, and I, uh, I guess you could say I manned up. I, I realized I had committed to something. And uh, I suppose when you commit, you really shouldn't walk away. You know what I mean? Amazing. Absolutely awesome. That's basically um, my entrance into the Rocky world and how it affected me as, as a young kid. As I got older, I would take many more lessons from Rocky. But I think the biggest one early on is one I think hardcore Rocky fans have digested and it's become part of their DNA. You know, Rocky knows the night before the fight, he goes to the spectrum, and he says, uh, he sees Mr. Jurgens there, and he says, uh, Mr. Jurgens, the pulse is wrong. What do you mean? Well, I'll wear a white pants with a red stripe. And Jurgens takes a puff of that cigar, and kind of like a real cocky jerk, he blows it out and he goes, it doesn't really matter, does it? I'm sure you're going to give us a good show. Rocky realizes that at that moment he's just the butt of a cruel joke. So he goes home and he sits in the bed with Adrian. And again, if anyone is a halfway decent Rocky fan, they know the mythology of this scene. They want, they were literally pulling the plug. The director said, nope, we're done. There's no more money. That's it. And Sly said, no, you don't understand. This is the movie. If you don't film this scene, that's it. You might as well not even do this movie. This is the entire component that ties everything together. And they said, okay, you get one shot at it. One shot. So they plug everything back in, and Stallone actually told me he drank this heavy molasses type of bourbon. They didn't get drunk, but he got it to where he felt very warm so he could get into that yo type of thing. Yeah. So he lays back on the bed with Talia Shire, and they yell action. And then, of course, we see... The true meaning. Rocky knows he doesn't have a chance of winning. He knows that. He's not going to be fooled by that. He, he's aware of his own limitations. But he also knows he thinks he has something a little bit special. Something that Mickey had alluded to much earlier. Because you have the talent to become a good fighter. And I think, I think when someone recognizes that in us, I, I think that was one of the main reasons why Rocky had, had done so well. And, and resonated so deeply. Um, anyways... Rocky tells her no one's ever gone the distance with Creed before, and if he could go that distance and seeing that bell rings and he's still standing, he'll know for the first time in his life he weren't just another bump in the neighborhood. And to me, a massive light bulb went off above my head. And I think that's it. 
me. I, I don't think I'm ever going to be good enough at any one thing. But what if I try? What if I just try at something? But the problem was I never really had the passion about anything to try at it except for Rocky. That was my passion. I literally wanted to be Rocky. But as you and I know, there's only one person who's Rocky. Yeah. And that's fictitious. He's an actor. Rocky's not even real. So I ask you, how in the hell could I possibly become Rocky? And at what age are you at this point? All right, so right now, I'm probably probably going around. Well, that was, I, I pretty much got that the night I saw Rocky. That, yeah. that was it. That, yeah. that was what I had walked away with at 11 years old. Yeah. And it had just been percolating inside for, oh, maybe three years, four years. Now around this time, I'm like about 15 years old, and I'm wearing the, the hat and coat in school. I had had a... Uh, some type of a run-in. wasn't really a big deal. You know, fights at that age. It's not like you're throwing three jabs and uppercut dancing around. You know, it's not like the movies. No. It's like two guys who really don't know how to fight. They're spitting, pulling each other's hair, you know, spinning each other around, ripping their shirt, maybe a, a kick or a punch here or there. And so that, I didn't run. I didn't, I didn't begin crying like I had earlier. Uh, I don't think I really won the fight, but I didn't run away. And so... Now I've discovered, a, now I'm, like I said, I'm about 15, I've got the hat and coat, I'm walking around my high school and uh, dressed like Rocky, and I've discovered a brand new species on the planet, girls. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my God, girls, the greatest thing on this planet by far. Well, it's up there with toilet paper, so <laughs> the, the women, women are just amazing, and to have a good one by your side to back you up through life. I can't think of a more uh, a greater honor than uh, to have uh, to have that. So, my first date I went on was to the uh, sophomore uh, uh, winter dance, and I didn't know really what to do. I hadn't been on many dates, any dates. So I brought a box of chocolate for the girl, and the girl was a severe diabetic, so that didn't really work out well. Great start. So, yeah, great start, just brilliant. <laughs> so the spec- So in the spring, in the spring, I, I asked another girl. I was working at a grocery store. It was kind of like in the center of the city, and so a girl from another high school was working there, and I asked her to the, the spring dance, and she said, yeah. And so I said, okay, no chocolate this time. Flowers. Girls like flowers. I'm going to bring flowers. Well, turns out she was asthmatic, and uh, <laughs> she went into a full-fledged attack right there on the front porch, so I didn't go to that dance either. Uh, anyways... Uh, a few years later, uh, it would be about 1989, I was 21 years old, and I was in Burger King's parking lot, and I ran into my wife, Sue, who was not only good friend, but her first cousin, Joe, was my best friend. So, you know, still is to this day, I suppose. So, anyways, uh, it was literally at that point that that fat little cherub was on a cloud a few hundred feet above us, pulls back his bow and shot an arrow through the back of my head, came out my forehead and impaled my girlfriend at the time, Sue, who I would later marry. So Cupid nailed us on the very first meeting. I think you were cursed at the start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, that was it. I, I, maybe Cupid had felt bad for me. Maybe yeah. he was like, oh, man, I really screwed up with this guy. I got to make up for it. So. And they say third time lucky, don't they, mate? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, we've been together 30 years, and um, 
I, you know, I'm a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like she comes home from work and Rocky's on. Uh, you know, and she's like, can we watch like a Julia Roberts movie? Or, you know, is there like something happening? I don't know, maybe with Hugh Grant. Can we watch something else other than Rocky? <laughs> so, you know, if you want to survive, that's one of the things is compromise. You know what I mean? Then you stick on Copland or Rambo or something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then it's go right to Copland. I said, look, <laughs> Annabelle in Copland. Yeah. Come on, let's watch that. You got the Terminator, right? Uh, from TV2, Robert Patrick, right? There you go. You've got uh, Harvey Keitel, Ray Liotta. She loves Ray Liotta, so come on. No, no, something non-Stallone. <laughs> okay. All right. I could give you 12 billion stories, but that was... That was the nucleus. That's how it all came about. Years later, my life would change drastically. So January, no, it's December of 2005. And they announced that Sly is going to be back in Philadelphia uh, filming Rocky Balboa. And there was a list of movie locations. They had just finished the fight in Vegas. And I believe in January they were going to come to Philly. So I said, okay. I tell my wife, I tell Sue. And she says, you got to take the painting with you. And I said, no, Sly's not going to like it if he even sees it. You know, it's, it's kind of silly. And she goes, no, she goes, you understand? She goes, he's a painter, you're a painter. She goes, you know, if, if Sly can see this art you did, then I think it would get him his attention. He might come over and talk to you. And I said, okay, I'll take it. So I had done this black and white painting years before of Rocky and Apollo at the very end of the 14th round. Uh, of course, Apollo knocks Rocky down, and we know Rocky could stay down. He doesn't have to get up. Even Mickey tells him, down, down, stay down. But Rocky had that personal goal, and he knew he had proven he could last with the champion, and nobody would have called him anything less than a, than a, than a winner. But he had just enough left, so he pushes himself off the canvas. He waves Apollo in, and damn it, if Carl Weathers doesn't sell that scene better than anyone I've ever seen. When Carl Weathers puts his head down and shakes it like, Jesus Christ, what the hell do I got to do to this guy? He's not stopping. And then it cuts back to Rocky and he waves them in again. Like, this is incredible. So Rocky's got that awkward stance back and forth. He's got his left hand a little lower maybe than what he should. And he's, his eyes are nearly swollen shut. And, of course, Apollo's ribs are really hurt. And he comes in protecting that, and he throws a punch, misses, and Rocky shoots up those um, those uppercuts. My God, that was just an amazing scene. And then you have the beautiful Going the Distance by Bill Conti. I mean, could you imagine? This hits me all in one nucleus. Like, I, I can't, I've never to this day seen its equal in that moment in, in, in any movie anywhere. So I decide to paint that. And uh, it's right after the ref breaks them up. Apollo is still hunched over and Rocky's backed away. That's pretty good. And so Sly gets on sight and he sees it. And he goes right over. And he goes, oh my, he goes, did you do this? I said, yeah. And I explained very briefly what it meant to me. And he goes, may I hold it? So he takes it out of my hand and he's feeling the paint, the, the raised brush strokes. And it was kind of weird at first. But then I remembered, well, you know, Sly's an artist. You see, I have a little bit of skill. I painted a cool scene from a movie. But Sly, when he paints, he gets a bone saw, cracks open his chest, 
He takes both his hands, spreads his ribs open, he reaches in, he grabs his heart, he slams it on his canvas, and then he does like a Jimmy Superfly snooker from the top rope, and he comes down with his elbow on his heart and smashes it into the canvas. Stallone paints with passion and purpose. <laughs> I just painted a cool scene. <laughs> you know? He's appreciating it. Yeah. But it is kind of weird because he's taking his fingertips and stroking them over the paint strokes of Rocky and Apollo's naked upper torso. So it's a little weird. But, you know, he's uh, he's an artist, so I took it all in stride. Anyway, he said, you know what you have here? And I said, no, I didn't know what he meant. And he goes, you've captured the heart and soul. You've captured the very nobility of Rocky. And in my mind, I was just like, oh, my God. This is beyond anything I could have had hoped for. So on the off chance that my wife was right, I took a silver Sharpie with me, and I asked him to sign it, and he did. And he goes to hand it to me, and then he pulls it back, and he says, you know, he goes, I don't ever want to see this on eBay. It's better than that. And it really, he had given me a Rambo snarl, actually. But uh, he, uh, he then put on a big happy face. He took a picture with me, and then he took a picture with some of the other people that were there hanging around, and then he had to get right to the set to start directing or whatever. So I thought, okay, that's it. I got home. About a week and a half later, I read they're going to be inside the Victor Cafe, which, as you know, is Adrian. Yeah. So, okay, we, uh, I go down there. I stand on the corner. I need my painting home this time. And he comes out every night. They were filming night scenes from 7 at night to 7 in the morning. And uh, he comes out, takes the pictures, and, you know, signs autographs, and he goes to dinner for an hour. Well, I was just about to go. I had to get back home to go to work at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning. And I felt this tug on my elbow. It was this lovely woman, and she says, you must be the stand-in. Now, you have to understand something. I never thought I looked like Rocky. I never thought I sounded like Rocky. I never thought anybody would say that to me, but she did. And so I said, I explained to her what the character meant to me, what I thought it meant to the world. Uh, and so that was maybe a 10, 15 minute conversation. And she goes, Oh my God. She goes, you're like literally a huge fan. And she goes, you belong inside the restaurant. You got to go watch some film. And I said, well, I'd love that, but I, I don't know anybody security, whatever. And I'll never forget this. She grabs her face with her hand and she shakes her hand and she kind of giggles and she goes, I'm so sorry. I should have introduced myself. My name is Alexa DeStefano. My husband and I own the Victor Cafe. Would you like to come in and watch them film Rocky Balboa tonight? Oh, my God. Now, I, yeah, right? <laughs> so I, I, I got to tell you, uh, when I woke up that morning, I only then decided to call off work to go down and see them film, see what I could see. Yeah. I, I had no idea I was going to be inside. So uh, we go in. And she gets me a cup of coffee. We go right past security. Now everybody's gone to dinner, so there's nobody inside. And there is Sylvester's director's chair. There are the two monitors. His cigar band is right there in the little ashtray. Uh, the big painting with Rocky and Apollo's on the back wall. The props are all over the walls. The movie camera is right there. And uh, anyways, we talk a little bit more. Next thing you know, an hour goes by. Sly comes back sees me, doesn't know how he knows me, but he knows he knows me. So he just does the, hey, guy, that type of thing, and he waves. Now he goes to the center of the room. And he's wearing the burgundy blazer that we see him in, in, in Balboa. 
only it has no significance to me at the time because I, I hadn't seen the movie because it's being filmed. And by the way, I'm standing on the film set. I keep pinching myself. So everybody's running around, Stallone's barking out orders, and then somebody on set, probably an assistant director, yells, all quiet on set. And Stallone takes a deep breath and exhales. His eyes get droopier, his shoulders slump down, and his voice gets a little deeper. I was standing right inside the door by the, uh, by the uh, Mater D stand there. Across from me is the little bar, and Burt Young is leaning on the bar. And Stallone yells, Yo, boy, he's ready. And Burt Young has gone. No one can find Burt Young. In his place is Paulie Panino. And Paulie simply says, ready, Rocco. And the next thing I know, Rocky Balboa yells, ah, shoot. And then <laughs> Paulie goes to turn on the TV, and he says, Rocco, I'm going to be late for work for this. So Rocky comes over, and they do that scene. They probably did it from seven or eight different angles. Steps is in the trophy room, looking at the big painting, the Leroy Neiman. He's looking at Rocky's awards. And we all know that scene. Okay. So they call cut like a hundred times and then I got to go upstairs because where I'm standing they're going to be filming so I go upstairs and I see this I recognize this older gentleman upstairs is like a loft area uh, the bathrooms are up there you can go have before or after dinner drinks it's a beautiful uh, area upstairs anyways they were using it now for like coffee wardrobe where other actors would go to wait, uh, or if people just needed to get out of the, the way of things. So I'm sitting there, and I see this older gentleman, about 60 years old, sitting across from me, and I recognize his hair. Unmistakable. So I walk over, and I said, excuse me, my name is Mike Kunda, and I'm a huge Rocky fan. Are you Spider Rico? And he goes, why, yes, I am. Well, I said, oh, my God, you're Pedro Lavelle. I, and I had, he was a real boxer from Argentina. And I knew his record at the time. I knew uh, a, a little bit about his life. So I began just as fast as I could spouting these facts. One thing leads to another. We take a picture and tells me in the original Rocky how he and Stallone worked out that scene and that it was the last thing they filmed in Rocky. So the very opening scene is the very last thing they filmed. So about this time, Stallone walks up the steps, and he's still in Rocky character. And he goes, yo, Spider, we need you downstairs. Come on. So he goes down, and uh, I sneak down. I watch them do another scene. And now it's literally like 4.30, and I got to get home. <laughs> I got work. So I go, you got to leave. Anyways, uh, I thought, okay, this is incredible. I'm never going to get another option like this. So, you know, that's that. Well, they finished filming by March. Everybody goes back to California. But my wife and I, we went back and forth uh, maybe a dozen times from March until June. Uh, we became very good friends with the owners, Greg and Alexa DiStefano. We had about a dozen dinners, dinners there, and they were just, one was better than the next, and it was just a fantastic restaurant. So I get a call from Greg DiStefano in late June, and he says, uh, basically, long story short, Stallone is going to be here uh, about two days after his birthday in early July for his 60th birthday dinner. They're going to have a little get-together with some family and friends. Now, the restaurant's going to be open, but 
because I had conducted myself well during filming, um, they were going to have a small circular table, but right up against Stallone's longer rectangular table. So it will look like an exclamation point. And if anybody listening has ever been to the Victor Cafe, you know it's a very narrow main dining room. So off to the back, down on the side a little bit, is where this all took place. So we get there early, and my friend Rhea, she, uh, her husband was uh, Lou. He was the guy that Rocky throws up against the wall to get the apology uh, uh, for insulting little Marie and Rocky Balboa. And Stallone uh, really loved this guy, Lou. He, Lou had an amazing history, one that Stallone was very interested in. And through him, he became friends with Rhea. And Rhea was the maitre d' and the manager of the Victor Cafe for nearly 20 years. She has since moved on. But what Rhea had done, she become, she befriended me and my wife. And to this day, she is just one of our, 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 our closest friends. Anyways, she comes up to me at the table and she goes, Mike, look for my sign. I'm going to get you a, a, a private talk out front with Sly. So now I'm really nervous. Now I'm thinking, Jesus, what am I going to talk? What am I going to say? You know, it's one thing to say happy birthday, Sly. Hey, great to see you again. You know, hey, I'm looking forward to Rocky. Okay, that's one thing. But another, to be alone and, and, and have a premeditated talk. Uh, so now I can't eat. I can't do anything. <laughs> Sly comes in. I see him. It's crazy. I see him lean over to his wife. He whispered something, and he makes his way to the table. Now, he, he knows he knows me, but he doesn't know how he knows me. So he just says, hello. He goes, hey, how you doing? And he could pull out any chair he wants, right? He chooses the chair directly on my right hand. He pulls it out, sits down, and you have to remember, this is uh, July 06. This was maybe three, four months before he was leaving to go to Burma for Rambo 4. So his hair was starting to get longer. He had, you know, put on another couple pounds. He had really bulked up. You know, he really looked amazing. His forearms, I'm not kidding you, they were literally the size of bowling pins. It was it was just amazing, uh, his shoulders and arms. Anyways, you hear bits and pieces of their conversation, their dialogue. He's talking about Rambo 4 when he's going to go filming. He's talking about how happy he's thinking Rocky Balboa is coming together and so on. And so that was kind of cool. And then something extraordinary happened. His little girls, the, I think he only had the two girls at the time. And uh, the two girls pulled on his arm and they said, Daddy, we got to go to the bathroom. Now the bathrooms are upstairs in the Victor Cafe. And he holds both their hands, he gets up, and he looks like he's carrying luggage as he walks through the restaurant with the kids, you know, holding their hands. Yeah. He's got giant, giant triceps and giant lats. So... He goes upstairs, and I said, turned to my wife, and I said, do you know what we just saw? And she goes, yeah, Rambo taking the kids to the bathroom. And I said, yes and no. My life, my view on Stallone changed at that moment. At that moment, I had taken Stallone off the pedestal. I realized he was not godlike. He was not immortal. In that moment, when he took the kids to the bathroom, I realized, he was a dad. He was a brother, a restaurant patron. He was a guy just like me. He woke up every morning. He had to go take a pee. He had bad breath and messy hair. And you know what? What switched on the pedestal? Rocky stayed on that pedestal and Stallone came off of it. 
And I don't know why it took me so long to understand that. Who knows? Maybe there are people out there that never get it. I don't know. Anyways, uh, it was much easier for me to relate and speak with Stallone after that moment. I wasn't intimidated anymore, or at least not on the level I had expected myself to be. So he comes back down and he starts talking to Rhea, and Rhea and him go through the front door outside to get some air. And she nods. It was an imperceptible nod, but my wife saw it, and she goes, Honey, go now. That's it. So I go. And I remember uh, everything went quiet in my mind. And the only thing I could hear was the clanging of coffee cups and the stirring of spoons in the coffee. And then like a thunderclap, it all came back. And then I started hearing uh, Eminem's Lose Yourself. You know, ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, ding. Oh, it was amazing. As I reached for the door, the lyrics were like, this is your moment. What are you going to do? Are you going to blow it? Are you going to throw up the spaghetti on your sweater? What are you going to do here, guy? This is your one shot. I had no idea at the time I would have about 100 shots with Sly, but I thought this would be my only one. So I go out, and Rhea, she was like the queen of the evening. She says, Sly, you remember my dear friend Mike Kunda from filming. And he goes, yeah, sure, of course I do. I do, Mike. And he really didn't, not yet. He was being courteous. But you know you can tell when someone remembers you and when they don't. Yeah. So, yeah, so no problem. I mean, he's Sylvester Stallone. He's meets a lot of people. Anyways, she goes inside, and it's just me and Sly standing there. So, you know, I, I told him that I had just seen the trailer uh, the, the night before for Balboa, and it was great. We talked about the fan reaction in the theater. And then he began telling me about how Adrian was alive in the original script of Rocky Balboa and how he found the restaurant, why he had to kill Adrian off, what it had meant, what uh, Talia, how she felt about it. And so my wife is watching through the window. She sees we're getting along. And we're animated, you know, our hands, we're moving, whatever. And so she comes back out and she goes, Sly, if I don't get a picture of you two together, my husband is going to kill me. So <laughs> he goes, sure, Mike, come on. He goes, put our arms around each other. We do the boxer's fist up. And she takes a couple pictures and she goes back inside. And at that moment, as the door closed, she never heard this. But Stallone points. And as Rocky, he says, George. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my God. He, he just, this is going to sound kind of dirty, but he just yo Adrian, my wife, and that was like the greatest thing. I couldn't wait to tell everybody at like, you know, when the family comes in for Christmas or a next <laughs> barbecue or whatever. So I have five seconds now. Now just picture yourself standing there, and you're not saying anything, and you're with Stallone. And Stallone's thinking, oh, man, this guy's he's gotten awful quiet. What, what do I do here? 1,001, 1,002. Five seconds go by, and I said, think of something, think, think, think. And the only thing I could think of is, Mike, why don't you do Rocky? Do one of your Rocky lines. I'm sure Sylvester never heard Rocky lines from other people before. So I did, and he liked it. And then he went. we went back and forth for probably seven or eight minutes. We were each, as Rocky, quoting Rocky lines to each other in front of Adrian's restaurant. I tell you, it was... 
one of the most amazing moments, non-family related, in my life. So he goes, wow, you do a pretty good Rocky. He goes, you really do look like me 30 years ago. He goes, you ought to do something with that. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you ought to get a hat and a coat. You know, get like a hustle. You know, like a, a, a Rocky look-alike thing for tourists. And I go, like an Elvis impersonator? And he smiled at that, you know? Okay. I, I don't know why he said that. I thought he was just being kind. So uh, that went in one ear and out the other. And then he backs up from me. And he rubs his chin and he goes, you know, he goes, when we were filming up at Little Marie's house, there was this guy, and he had this black and white painting of Rocky and Apollo. And I slapped my chest so hard. I said, slide. That was me. And he goes, he snaps his fingers and he goes, that's how I know you. He goes, you know, when I came into the restaurant tonight, he goes, I leaned into my wife and I told her, I said, I think this guy sitting down there at the table is connected with the owners or something. He goes, I know I've seen him before. And so uh, that painting got me on the radar because my wife had suggested I bring it, you know, back in the wintertime. So, okay. Uh, they bring out the owner. We go back inside now. The owners bring out this big cake. The entire restaurant sings happy birthday to Rocky and Rambo. It's crazy. Um, he goes back to having conversations, and at the end of the night, uh, you know, we shook hands, and uh, that was that. So I've now just been to Paris. Now I have to go back to the farm and milk the cows. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So, okay, no problem. Uh, I can do that. I, uh, I, I was... Glad I had that moment in time with uh, a guy who created a character who influenced my life beyond anything. But that was it. It was done because I had been working in retail, uh, corporate America, uh, and I barely graduated high school, Mark. But I never got a. I never went to college. I, I was. I really wasn't that smart for college. Anyways, I hated my job. I hated where I was at. It was a very ugly, dark time working there, and uh, I would have done anything else, but I wasn't qualified for anything else, or so I thought. I uh, read in the local newspaper about a week later, it's early August now, I'm reading, the city of Philadelphia is sponsoring a Rocky and Adrian look-alike contest, national Rocky look-alike contest, okay? And the winner gets two golden tickets in December to the world premiere of Rocky Balboa in Philadelphia on the red carpet with all the stars. You get to sit in the movie theater with Burt Young, Milo Ventimiglia, Geraldine Hughes, Stallone, all of them, and you get to watch Rocky Balboa. And then you get to go inside the Philadelphia Museum of Art for the after party with the stars. Wow. What a great thing that is. Could you imagine if you enter and, and you were actually to win that? I'd lose my mind. Of course, yeah. of course. So, uh, I don't enter. I uh, I was too afraid because even though all these uh, things Stallone had said to me, all the times I walked around my neighborhood as a kid with my grandfather's hat and coat on with a Walkman on, mumbling the Rocky lines, repeating them, repeating the scenes, knowing all of the trivia, despite being what I consider myself uh, an aficionado in that area, uh, I declined to enter the contest because I don't want to be humiliated. I couldn't stand to lose. If what I love so deeply, Rocky, if I was attached to some event and I came away a loser attached to Rocky, I could never live with myself. 
insult. A lot of people were angry with me. My friends at the Victors, my wife, my family, my mother and father, my, everybody was very angry. What I didn't know is that my wife had taken the picture uh, with me and Sly, and she had put it in a frame and gave it to our friends at the restaurant. I didn't. She just gave it to them as a little thank you, and they kept it up in the office for a little while. So a couple weeks go by, and I get a phone call from the contest officials. And they say, uh, is this Mike Kunda? Yeah. Well, we just want to let you know, you beat out a thousand people. You're in the top five for the Rocky Lookalike contest in early September of 2006. <laughs> and I said, wait, you got the wrong guy. I never answered. And they said, well, we're looking at a picture of you and Sylvester Stallone right now, and you two could be brothers. And uh, I said, well, how'd you get the picture? And they said, well, I don't know how we got it, but I can tell you where the, the return address is the Victor Cafe. So Rhea and my friends at the Victor Cafe mailed that picture of me and Fly in. That's a true story. And I said, are you telling me that I have done absolutely nothing and I beat a thousand people and I'm in the top five? I said, yep. I said, okay, I'll be there. What do I have to do? And they said, well, you have to know trivia. You got to know your Rocky trivia, number one. Okay, I got that. Number two, you got to come dressed as your favorite Rocky. You got to... Whether it's in the sweats, you want to wear the red headband, you want to wear the fedora and the leather, whatever it is. Okay? The third thing is you got to interact with a crowd of about 2,000 people while TV cameras and radio and newspaper are there. I'm like, oh, okay. I had never done anything like that remotely close to that in my life. So uh, I said, okay, I'll be there. So the day the contest arrives and I show up, and I'm in the basement of the old Philadelphia Visitor Center. And it's now being turned into a 360-degree uh, glass-walled bar at Love Park. Uh, it's being rehabbed. But at the time, it was like for local offices or whatever. It's kind of a small building. And the five of us go down in the basement, and we're waiting as the Adrians are performing out on stage. And we each have a little white name tag, and we're, we're labeled Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4. Not, not due to our looks, just enumeration only. So we could hear the Adrians performing, and it was kind of funny. And I remember speaking to all the, the, the other four Rocky guys, and they all had very interesting stories. Uh, they were a bunch of great guys, and uh, I was touched that we all kind of accepted each other at this point. It was, it was really cool. Anyway, we go out, we all do the, what we do, and then something very weird happened. Well, two things. The second I walked out of that basement up the steps of the stage, it was all decked out in red, white, and blue, big banners, it was great. From the second I walked out, I said to myself, Mike doesn't exist. You're Rocky. And I stayed as Rocky for one hour. And what did that mean? That meant my inflection, my voice, my mannerisms, my moving. However Rocky might answer a question is how I would answer the question. So the end comes, the final question comes, and it, I was the last one to get the question, and all of the Rockies have to answer. So the first Rocky is asked, what did you have for breakfast today, Rock? And the guy says, well... My wife took me to the pancake house, and another guy says, well, I got oatmeal and French toast. Another guy says, I had ham and eggs. And we get to me. 
Now, if anyone listening, what do you think Rocky should say he had for breakfast? What would you say? I'm thinking something healthy like eggs. <laughs> he had five raw eggs. Yeah. This is the only remote thing we've seen Rocky eat. Ever. So, yeah. so I said, oh, yo, you know, I've done the five raw eggs, but you know, since I get older, the cholesterol, I got to take pills now, you know. So I kind of broke up the crowd into laughter and everything. That was the deciding factor because those guys, some of them sounded more like Rocky. Some of them looked more like Rocky. A couple of the guys had way better bodies than I did at the time. They were definitely more muscular like Rocky. But they didn't see themselves as Rocky. And that was my deepest dream was to see myself as Rocky. So I thought, okay, here is a one-off. This one time in my life, I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to be afraid. As Rocky, I could do anything. I can talk to a crowd of 1,000 people, 2,000, 10,000, whatever. And, you know, I won't get embarrassed about it. So I end up winning the entire contest, and I get the ticket, and now I got to wait till December. Okay, now in between, there's a little bit of downtime. But the day I got home from the contest, it was on the local news, and I get a call from the March of Dimes, which is a charitable organization here in America for premature babies. And they say, uh, Mr. Kunder, we'd like to congratulate you on your win. But we're, uh, we're doing an event in Philadelphia in a few weeks, and we'd like to have you come out as Rocky to you know, bring a little Philadelphia flavor. We're going to have a Ben Franklin, a Betsy Ross. No, we can't pay you any money, but you're doing a good thing. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I can do that. So I go. My wife is filming, and I'm just walking around for an hour, interacting with the children, with the adults, whatever, having fun. And this guy comes over to me and says, my name is Jeff Feinberg. I run an events group here in Philadelphia called Robert's Events Group. And what we do, we close down streets and we put big events on. Might be 100 people, might be a big race for 60,000 people. Sometimes we go to the convention center. Let's say the Pipefitters Union of America is in town for three days. On the opening night, we'll have an open bar, have a band. We'll bring you in, play the Rocky music. You run through the crowd, welcome them, take pictures, you're out of there. I said, what? This is insane. I didn't even know such a thing existed. Not really. And uh, he says, yeah, we, we want to hire you. But my wife comes running across. She knows I'm going to ruin it and say, no, 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 I'm in corporate America. I don't know what you're talking about. And the guy says, give me one of your business man or your, your agent and your manager's card. And my wife goes, well, we're all out of cards. We had given them out this morning. And my wife gives me the look that all wives give their husbands to shut up. <laughs> yeah, and, stay uh, silent. <laughs> you know, women are so good at that. So, guy says, yeah, he gives us one of his cards. And on the drive home, I'm like, okay, now what do we do? And she goes, you hate your job. She goes, you want to get out of there, but you don't have a lot of skills for other jobs. So maybe this is something. And I said, uh, okay. So I uh, happen to belong to a particular Stallone chat forum online and there's a guy there I spoke with pretty frequently and I told him what happened to me he goes uh, well Mike I think I can help you with that turns out he had some connections and he was a bit of a, a manager of some talent and on a, on a basically a handshake we, 
he became my, my uh, agent slash manager, and he's been with me for 12, 13 years now. And he gets me all my Rocky gigs. And, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's how that all kind of came to be. It's amazing. It's, well, it's, it's crazy. It's just, you know, the, the dream came reality, and that doesn't happen. You know, most people sit at their office job or their retail job, and they're just sitting there going, that's just the dream. That's not ever going to become reality, is it? You are, you are saying exactly what millions of people across this planet say to themselves every goddamn day when they go to work. You hear about it, but it's never you. It's always somebody else. It's like someone in Gary, Indiana, Gary, Gary, Indiana, or Poughkeepsie, New York, or, you know, somewhere out in Montana, or out in, you know, somewhere in the UK or in Australia, somewhere that isn't anywhere near you. And so, okay, so what most of us, we just keep going through life. But what is, what really is the definition of luck? To me, luck is being prepared. What do you practice at? What have you worked at? What have you honed when opportunity T-bones with your practice? You're ready. You're ready to apply yourself. So because I had practiced Rocky so much as a kid and a young adult, I, it was all there. I hadn't done it in a little while, but it was all there. The knowledge was in my mind, okay? And then the opportunity of the contest comes along, and I took advantage of that. And then the guy saw me and wanted to hire me because he was happy to looking for uh, a Rocky. And I was ready to be a Rocky. Now, I'm a much better Rocky today than I was when I first started this. But that's to be expected. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's how the evolution kind of began. And in between there, there were odd moments of running into Sylvester Stallone at, say, a Planet Hollywood on my birthday back in the 90s, like when he was filming Copland. Uh, I remember... My wife had a surprise birthday party for me at the New York City Plan of Hollywood. And Stallone had been in a back room having lunch. He had taken the weekend off from filming at Copland. And I remember we were in the bar, and I was... Have you ever been to a, a Plan of Hollywood? I've been to some, but not that one. Okay. Well, you know in all of them, they have the big TVs, and they play the highlights of the hero's role, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So... I'm watching Stallone's highlight role, and it's me and my family. There's about 15 of us, or give or take, and we're standing in this little velvet roped-off area by the bar waiting for a table to open up. And you can hear an audible gasp in the restaurant. And my father, my mother, my wife, my brother, everybody's going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, Michael, turn around. Mike, turn around. And I go, wait a minute. I'm looking. I'm watching Sly on TV. I'm watching his highlight reel. Give me a minute. And my dad is like, Jesus, Mike, turn around. Holy shit. And my mother, I'll never forget this. My mother gets my head, and I thought she broke my neck. She snapped my head to the left so goddamn hard. There, maybe eight feet from me, everything slowed down in slow motion. Everything. I could see people in the background bringing a, a glass of water to their lips. That was slow motion. Everyone was slow. And here I saw this 40-pound overweight, more than likely dyed jet black hair, Sylvester Stallone, 
walking towards me in a massive Hawaiian shirt and aviator sunglasses. And he's rolling towards me, and I'm my mouth is open. <laughs> I have the dumbest look in the history of looks on my face. And I'm looking at I could hear muffled behind me, my family, pushing me and screaming, tell him it's your birthday, Mike, it's Rocky, Mike, it's Stallone, come on. And I couldn't move. I was frozen. And I simply uttered, Sly, you're the greatest. I was thoroughly humiliated after yelling that. <laughs> and he got about 10, because that's so lame. <laughs> 10, 10 feet past me. He takes his aviators off and he goes, oh, thanks. And he walks out the door into the limo and he's gone. Now, my father at this point had regained command of his limbs because he was a little starstruck too. He hurdles over the velvet rope. He runs down the planet Hollywood Hall, opens up the door and starts yelling to this. It's my kid's birthday slide. And the limo's pulling off, you know. So, uh. There's a picture somewhere, I think it's in my book, there's a picture of all of us in that very planet of Hollywood, like five minutes later, and the waitress took a picture, and you could see I'm crying, I couldn't believe it, I totally geeked out, fanboyed out, it was so humiliating, <laughs> and when I, think, when I think to where I am now with Sly, yeah. it, it's very humiliating, and I, I hope to share that story with him again soon. So then, at this point, you've obviously got an agent, you're going out there impersonating your absolute idol, but at what point did you decide to try and take this into a, you know, the, the, the official tour that you wanted to do, where you could give people that experience of visiting these iconic locations in Philadelphia? Yeah, so, so the deal with that was, in 1989, uh, my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time. We're watching Rocky on VCR. And I pause it and I say to her, Hey, let's go down let's go down to Philly and check out some of the Rocky sites. Now you have to remember I'm living in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half northeast of Philadelphia. So she says, you know, we really don't know these locations. Now I had just seen on uh, public broadcasting, I had just seen a documentary on Philadelphia. And in this documentary, they showed the elevated train tracks, okay, that we see so prominently in the Rocky series. And I, they said they were in this part of town called Kensington. So there was no computers, no cell phones, no Google Maps, nothing. And I get a, I get a regular map, and I pause the VCR on all the neighborhood scenes. And I grab my Polaroid camera, and I take maybe 30 Polaroid pictures of what was on the TV. Now, you have to remember, back then, when you paused a VHS tape, you didn't get clear quality. It was shit. So we're driving around Philadelphia. One of us is holding the map. One of us is holding the pictures, trying to identify. You know, we get to the elevated train tracks, and we find a majority of the sites. So we, on the way home, I'm like, man, wouldn't it be amazing if we could, like, you know, bring if fans could come see this. My wife goes, yeah, like a Rocky tour. So there's no internet yet, right? Not really. So we're, we just, that's in limbo, that thought. Now in, what well, must have been, geez, when was it? Somewhere around 2010, maybe. I, uh, 
We started doing them maybe one or two a year on a big school bus. We'd use Facebook as a gathering location. And what we originally, the, the original concept was a three-day tour. And what we would do, we would rent out the Victors one night for everyone. We would rent out a floor of a hotel for the guests coming in. And we got 50, 60 people coming to take the tour. And then we reached out to local Philadelphians who had roles in the movie. Like if they spoke up one line or two, like the girl in Balboa, Angie Boyd, who harasses Rocky for a drink. And uh, so people like that, we'd have them come on the bus and talk about their time with Sly, a couple other people. And uh, the tour would be an eight-hour tour. And then Sunday morning, we'd go to the Rocky Steps, and we'd have a Rocky run up the steps. And whoever won, they got a two-foot-tall statue of the Rocky statue that was given to us by uh, the Schomburg family, who uh, their uh, Tom Schomburg is the man who made the Rocky statue, who I'm proud to say is a, a good friend of mine. So anyways, that was in the beginning, but my wife came to me and said, you know, Mike, we're losing a lot of money here, so we got to find another way. And that's what, that's what we did. We decided uh, about two years after that to buy a small minivan and make it private tours, and we're able to take people, we pick them up at the hotel, and we take them around to all the filming locations inside of three and a half or four hours. And what I do, I share this portions of the story I've told you and many other things that have happened after what I told you. Uh, How Stallone and I became friends, and the people in the Rocky universe that I uh, had meetings with and, and had taken stories and I can now apply that to uh, when we're driving around on the tours. So that's, that's a real bare-bones version of how the tours became the tours. But you must have never imagined it to become, you know, the, the highest rated on TripAdvisor. The, you never must have imagined that, you know, you, you have to book in advance because it's so busy. Like, I remember when I came over and bought my dad for his birthday. You remember his face, you know. It's, I do. It's insane. I do. It's one of the it's one of the stories I include from time to time on my tours with people because I remember the look on your dad's face and your dad was a little older gentleman and people ask me what's the age group that I get? And I tell them it's anywhere from seven year old kids to, you know, guys in their eighties and uh, I remember uh, talking about your dad and, and just how how much fun it was to see it through his eyes, uh, which was remarkable. So when we when we started, I had no, my wife and I, we don't really travel a lot, and at least we didn't back then. And I didn't know what TripAdvisor was. And uh, a guy, uh, this guy named Claudio from Italy, he's one of the Pope's Vatican guards, came with his family to take a, a tour. He had heard about me, and by this time I was doing private tours. But... I don't even, he must have heard something on Facebook or whatever. So he takes the tour, he loves it, he has an excellent time, and he says, Mike, he goes, two things for you to build on. Everything is great. He goes, one, you gotta get a website. He goes, you gotta get it out there so people can find you. And number two, he goes, for people to feel safe with you, you gotta start getting on TripAdvisor. And then he explained what TripAdvisor was. And I took his advice. And a couple weeks later, he was the very first person to leave a review, an excellent review. And I think when I debuted on TripAdvisor, I don't know, I was in the 60s or 70s. I don't know what it was. 
And now, uh, we just like you said, we are the number one tour in Philadelphia out of about 84 tours uh, via TripAdvisor. And it, it's quite an achievement. Now, I don't know if I'll stay there. I mean, who, who the hell knows? But I've been there for, I don't know, half a year now or better. And it's, it's I never could have imagined. And then, booking. I went from doing five or six of these a year to doing about 25 or 30 a month. And recently, or last April actually, Sylvester got a picture of me and him in front of the Rocky statue as I was dressed as Rocky with him punching me in the face. And he decided to endorse me and the Rocky tour. And he said some very kind things on that post about me. And I then jumped to maybe 100, 120 requests a month. But obviously it's just me and my stories in the van. And I can only take seven people. So I have to, and they're, they're private tours. I don't mix. No. Uh, you know what I mean? I keep it separate. That's one of the things I firmly believe is special and unique about this tour. Uh, and so... I, uh, I, I I can't give a lot of tours to a lot of people. So in a way, it's really awesome what Sly did, but in another, it's like the, there's so many fans left that I can't give tours to that I try to fit in throughout the year, but it's, it's almost impossible. So, so to your question, no. Never in a billion years did I ever think that little boy, 11 years old, sitting with my parents watching Rocky on that little 19-inch wood console TV on the floor would get here, let alone become friends with Sly and, and get the, the meetings I have with that, that I've had with Sly. Like after, after he endorsed me, I said, uh, Jesus, I got to thank him. So we get, we go on, I'm on set. My friends at the Victors, they, they uh, bring me down for Creed 2. And we watch Sly and Drago, Rocky and Drago, go at it in the restaurant. It was an amazing moment. I mean, it was like, it, it, it was breathless how we were all seeing Rocky and Drago for the first time since 1985. It was so goddamn amazing. Um, anyways, they took a break, and Sly goes outside. I go out. I see him standing on the side of the wall, and I say, Yo, Sly, smoking a big cigar. I said, Yo, Sly, Mike Kunda from the Yo Philly Rocky Film Tour. And he takes a, a, he inhales a little bit on the cigar, and he blows the smoke up in the air. Now, he's leaning against the wall, wearing the Rocky hat, wearing the very clothes he's filming with, okay? And he goes, yeah, I know who you are. You don't expect Sylvester Stallone to say that. No. Even though I know he knows me. Yeah. Even though we have had many, many, many talks, uh, run-ins, bump-ins, whatever you want to call it, to hear him say that throws you. So I said, listen, I just want to thank you for what you said, for putting that tweet, the, the Instagram out there. I go, you didn't have to do that. That was so nice. And he goes, Mike, he goes, are you kidding? A Rocky tour. Never in 100 years would I have ever thought of that. He goes, that's amazing. He goes, tell me more. So I told him a little bit more about it. And he goes, you know, he goes, I like knowing, he goes, I'm not going to be around forever, he goes, and I like knowing fans are in your good charge of the character, he goes, the passion you have for that character is, he goes, that makes me feel so good, he goes, I just want people to know about you to come take your 
Rocky, and Rocky is my idol. And yeah. so, therefore, Rocky is telling me this. So, you do... I'm going to sound like a fanboy here, but you go a little weak in the knees in that moment because, again, you don't ever expect this interaction to ever happen. I never even dreamed it would. You know, you, you dream maybe you write a good script and you're on the Oscar stage accepting a an Oscar for the best original screenplay and maybe Stallone hands me the Oscar. That was the extent of my dream, okay? Yeah. Never did I think it would be this um, uh, titanic. So we spoke for the better part of 45 minutes or an hour, and about halfway through, Sly says to me, um, hang on a second, Mike, you got your phone, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, he turns to his assistant, Sarah Paterno, and he says to her, Sarah, why don't you take Mike's phone and video me and him talking? We'll talk about Rocky, whatever. And then, Mike, you could put this on your website to help you with traffic. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> why not? Now, I don't know exactly how much Sylvester Stallone charges for advertising, but I've read estimates that it's anywhere from 3 to $7 million to do a vodka ad, to do a car commercial, uh, that uh, pen commercial. And here, he's doing it for free. <laughs> so, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this cannot get any more bizarre. So, you can see the three minutes and 30 seconds that were filmed if you go to my front page of the Yo Philly Rocky Film Tour website. You can see he and I speaking there. Uh, for those of you that think I'm full of shit, <laughs> because I guarantee there's people out there thinking that. And so, you can go see it. I've seen um, it. I've watched it, dude. It's it's awesome. I've seen all your Facebook updates, the steps when you're having your photos taken together, the video footage of you punching each other. It's it's abs- it's it's amazing, man. It's awesome. It's it's crazy. It, it it really is. You know, never in my wildest dreams did I think that. So, you know, Sly and I are talking really like off the record type stuff. You know, and it's uh, stuff that. I have written down in a file, so I I won't ever forget what he told me. But, you know, some things you just keep to yourself. But I can tell you, uh, one thing we we both, uh, we we can both say is that, I, I said, Sly, you know, the person that sold being punched the best was Carl Weathers. When you... In one of the scenes that comes to mind, there are two scenes. In Rocky Two, in the last round, where Rocky's hitting him in the, in the body with those body blows, and, and Apollo's leg keeps kicking out from him, back of him. It was so natural, the way Carl sold the strength of Rocky. And then in Rocky Four, now Dolph Lundgren is a large guy, a strong guy, but I don't think he's Drago strong. So Carl Weathers has to sell being thrown around the boxing ring like a rag doll. And I, I, I tell you, it was nothing short of amazing how Carl Weathers did that. So he goes, are you kidding? He goes, Carl Weathers is perfect in every way, shape, and form. What he did for Apollo, bringing it to life, the way he moved, he had elegance and grace and dignity. He goes, he was by far the best. And uh, he shared with me who he thought was the worst. 
They mean they mean the world. So now here's the funny part. Sly gets very animated. I uh, I asked them. I said, Sly, what is your closest? What what is your closest Rocky in boxing? I said, are, do you are you like Rocky in the the original? Are you more light on your toes like Rocky three? And he goes, Oh, Rocky three. That's me. He goes, You know, three, four, five rounds moving. Bam, 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 bam. You know, that that's about as that that's what I go with. He goes, no, I'm not like the original Rocky. He goes, I don't. I never really fought like that. And so. That kind of that kind of really gets you inspired because now when I go back and watch Rocky Three, there's more naturalness of Stallone in the character at that moment, and uh, so you know, cool stuff like that he shared. Um, but anyways, he became very animated, and he has the cigar with the ash on it, and so he's moving his arms around or whatever, and he bumps the front of the Rocky hat like near the peak of it, and there's a gray ash dot that you can see in some of the pictures. And I didn't have the balls to tell him it was there. So it's like you're out to dinner with someone and they have a piece of asparagus stuck in their tooth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm. So now we're, we're talking. Now here's the weird thing. And it was not a problem, but it was a little odd. We are in the middle of this heartfelt conversation. We're going back and forth, and it's really just really, really uh, emotional to me. And an assistant comes up to Sly, and he goes, uh, Sly, the director's ready for you now. Literally, in the middle of the goddamn sentence, he turned and walked away from me. I, I, I was like, uh, okay, Sly, I'll see you. And I guess that's it. He turned the bell on in his head, and that was it. He's time to go to work. And, um, you know, the Sarah had stayed back to talk with me a little bit, and then Stallone's driver... They had shared more information that Stallone had told them about me, about the tour, and uh, I was kind of glad they did that because uh, it, it, it really tied everything up in a nice bow. But I, I, the reason I say all that is because of Sylvester's professionalism. When it was time to go, he didn't hang around and bullshit. He didn't make the other actors wait. He went when he was told. Yeah. And I, I found that remarkable. A man of his stature in the business. You know what I mean? Massively, and it's, it just shows how much credit he's got for everyone around him. Exactly right. That, that's, you know, that's, an, that's the perfect way of putting it, because everyone's time is very valuable, not just, you know, the, the kingmaker. So, anyways, uh, that was pretty amazing. And then, just recently, I saw Sly out in Los Angeles when we, uh, we got invited by the Beverly Hills Film Festival out there to play The Pretender. And it was uh, you know, really well received, and I actually it was just a happenstance meeting with Sly, and uh, we had a we had a nice little chat there, and uh, it, it was a good time. Although I got to tell you, I'm not, I got no love for Los Angeles or Hollywood. Not my kind of place. Not your cup of tea. No, not at all. I have some friends out there that I value very much. Uh, a dear friend of mine, Claude. Uh, another friend, Lisa. And uh, another guy that grew up uh, very near my hometown, Todd, uh, who actually, by the way, Cenobante uh, is his last name. He was Van Damme's stand-in for maybe 20 years. Nice. Yeah, 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 nice. Anyway, so, you know, I miss those guys. The three of them uh, are, are really great people, but, um, yeah, I, I don't like Los Angeles. Not my, not, my, not, my, not my thing. So, Mike, you just mentioned the reason you're there, and this is what I want to finish today's interview on is because of The Pretender. Now, 
this is the next level. So we've heard these great stories about how you've been on set of these films. You've had time with your absolute idol. He's now a friend. But then to have a movie made about your life, that is, that's not just getting the Oscar. That's winning a few Oscars that night in your dream, isn't it? And Stallone handing yeah. you them all. It's yeah, That's mind-blowing. Yeah, you're, you're right. How did this? Uh, how did this come about, mate? Okay, so during uh, 2006, when I was standing there with my painting, waiting for Sly to show up on set, in the freezing January cold, it was like nine degrees out. There was another guy there, and he was from Detroit, and uh, he had really olive complexion skin, really dark Italian guy with this big Fu Manchu, and he had this skull cap pulled down really low. And I remember thinking, I thought he was like Latino at the time or something. And uh, we just started talking. We just hit it off, a very natural natural friendship. And his name was Jim Toscano. And he was from a filmmaker from Detroit. He's probably about 10 or 12 years younger than me. And uh, he was in town for business. And he wanted to see some of the filming with Balboa, and he did. And he began following me and my exploits online as I would update things or whatever. And he said one day, he goes, Mike, he goes, you know, he goes, I've always wanted to do a Rocky project, but you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but you know, I think we could do some with you. Maybe we'll do like a five, 10, 15 minute little thing. And that'll be that. So he flies out to Scranton and you know, he follows me around for a couple of days. We do a tour. He's there with the camera or whatever. And he soon realized this was a little bit bigger than what he had thought. So to capture everything, you'd have to do like a 10 hour miniseries. And it was too big of a project. So he thought, you know, instead of how I got here, why not do a, a little documentary on why I got here? Why? And he found a beautiful story underneath a bigger story. It was uh, nothing short of miraculous and impressive on his end. So he, him and his team uh, worked on this for the better part of five, six years, they put it all together, and then they hired the music. And I think the first guy they hired, they weren't too happy with, and they hired another guy. And this guy nailed it. Uh, I have a copy of the soundtrack that I listen to almost every day. And I can tell you, when you have a soundtrack based off of yourself with your name on it, Mike's theme song, my God, could you imagine what we could all accomplish in life if we all had a, our own theme music? inspiring us to you know keep moving forward when we don't think we can um and so we never thought the movie was going to get done because this was a, a labor of love jim has kids and a wife a wonderful wife lucia uh and uh, a couple of kids and so he's got to bring home the money and every every once in a while he'd be able to work on the documentary and then something happened you'd have to ask him i'm not sure something happened on his end that kicked everything in, and he put it all together, and then we had a, a premiere in Detroit about a year and a half ago, and then last April we had another premiere in Detroit when they went, it was really great. That's what started the film festival circuit. And I, I can't even begin to tell you how many film festivals we were at. We were at one over in Manchester in England, uh, over in the UK, and you know we, we won awards at almost all of them, and we got a lot of standing ovations. So we now knew this thing had legs. And the Beverly Hills Film Festival invited us out. Out of three, 4,000 films that get entered to the Beverly Hills Film Festival, 
they chose ours. Like, I don't know, 137 films get chosen, and our little film, The Pretender, just this simple, like, there's little budgets, and then there's no budgets. There was no budget for this movie, and people seem to really like it. But it, the reason why I think it's successful, and why I think people like it, it's like a road shark test where you are in your life. It's not necessarily about me. You see the loving, supportive wife. You see the worried parents. You see the brother who understands what the older brother's going through as this rocky, impersonated thing that begins to take shape. Uh, so it, it, you kind of can come away with a few different messages from it. And <laughs> I'll tell you, there are some pretty damn powerful scenes in it. And um, I'm just... Now we're now they're uh, talking distribution. Yeah. So ho- hopefully Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, Showtime, whoever has streaming. Uh, that's the goal to maybe lease it to them, and um, someday we'll be walking down the aisle in Walmart, and there will be the copy of the Pretender on the shelf, and I can truly say I made it. My my last question for you today, and I think if anyone can answer it with the most sincerity and the most you know, heart is going to be you. So you were that kid growing up that got bullied and you turned it around and you found your superhero and you created a different person for yourself, a better mindset, and you've come out the other end. But what advice do you give to those people that are listening that are being bullied or their kids are going to be, you know, going through bullying at school? What advice do you give them to come and kind of give them hope and get them out the other end? Talk about it. Don't keep it locked up. Yeah. Say something. Because you're not the only one getting bullied. There's another kid that is getting bullied too. You know what? Go. Talk to them. Reach out to that person. There is safety in numbers. I'm not, I'm not talking about you gang up on the bully and beat him up. Because quite often, bullies at home, they aren't really bullies. They're acting out because they are being abused at home. I know what happened to several of the schoolyard kids that pushed me around. I know what happened to them years later in their own home. Yeah. I would say that that's one thing. Another is don't be afraid to stick up for yourself. Trust me, that is one of the things you've got to believe in yourself. It took me decades to believe in myself. And I came from a very good family. You know, I have a very loving wife. It's, it's something inside us. It's a tick. It's a switch that was never turned on, and you just, I was lucky. I had parents that loved me, and, and I, I found solace in Rocky. Rocky truly, truly is my best friend. When I tried out for co- uh, high school football, I just barely made the team. I was third string. He sat on the bench with me when I never got called into any game. He was the one that was by my side. And even though it feels dark, I swear, just reach for the light. You'll hit the switch. You will be able to persevere. But it really is about perseverance. It, it, it really is. Obviously, Mike, I really appreciate your time in coming on the podcast today. And I don't just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I want to thank you for two years ago in Philadelphia for my dad's birthday because the listeners out there may have seen some of the pictures, but it was his 80th birthday. We surprised him and you gave him uh, memories that he talks about every single time I see him. We talk about going outside Mickey's gym, visiting Adrian's pet shop and walking around Philadelphia. And honestly, you gave him an experience that money couldn't buy. You've given him memories and it's brought me and him closer than we could ever dream of. Wow. 
That's 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 amazing. No, I thank you for because I got to talk with him and learn about his life and what his experiences were. So, my God, uh, thank you, and please give my best to your dad. Uh, I hope he's you know doing well. And uh, wow, so thank you, thank you. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Mike. A much longer episode than my last few, and that's a good thing. It means we weren't limited and only had so many questions to ask. We could talk and just be ourselves, and I believe that me and Mike could have talked for easily another 10 hours, and to hear some of those stories about Sylvester Sloan and how much of a great guy he is, is just amazing. To see the pretender now doing so well, to see the tour going and selling out all the time and being absolutely busy as ever, it's everything that I could wish for Mike, and I think he'll go on and do even more and more, and I'm, I'm, he's someone that I class as a friend now, and that's something that's so important to me and my dad. If any of you listen to any of Mark and me or skip to the end in the past, you'll know that my absolute hero in my life is my dad. I am so inspired by him every day and he is my role model. I look up to him every single day and this episode is a tribute to him and an absolute dedication to him. I love him more than absolutely anything and I know that when he listens back to this, he'll really, really enjoy kind of the experience of the Rocky Tour coming back to him. He's always looking at the photos and Mike gave us a day that we will never ever forget and for that I'm absolutely in debt to you for the rest of my life. It's a gift that is absolutely priceless and means more to me than absolutely anything so thank you. I really hope all of you guys out there have enjoyed the episode too today and will check out The Pretender. Like I said, it's on Amazon Prime or you can pay for it on iTunes and all the different services. Just go on and type in The Pretender movie on Google and all the links are there. It's such a good documentary and such a good film and I urge you all to go and do that. If you like today's episode, you know what to do by now. Go on markandme.com. On there there's my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter or my email. Let me know what you think, I'll retweet you, share your thoughts, I'll share them with Mike, and I'll be back in a week's time with a brand new episode. I'll speak to you all then, and thanks again for listening.